Amen. Thank you, Brother Randolph. Appreciate that. May I never forget the debt my sin cost. How appropriate. Ecclesiastes this morning. We'll be out of Romans this morning. This is uh, Labor Day weekend, so we're going to talk about labor. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Laboring for the wind. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this another day, another Lord's Day, a chance to gather in your house. And Lord, we would ask that you would meet with us, that you would make this day profitable, that you would speak to hearts. And work as only you can. Bless now, Lord, I pray in particular that you'd work in the hearts of those that do not know you personally. They've never been born again the Bible way. I pray you'd draw them to yourself. Lord, guide now as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Labor Day weekend, a time when many Americans try to get away for one last holiday trip or vacation before school starts or before things really kick into high gear. I'm glad you didn't do that. I'm glad you're here. Uh, some, some people took off, but you're here. It's much better to preach to people than to preach to chairs. The first, very first Labor Day holiday was celebrated a long time ago, Tuesday, September the 5th, 1882 in New York City in accordance with the plans of the Central Labor Union. In 1884, two years later, the first Monday in September was selected as the holiday as originally proposed, and the Central Labor Union urged similar organizations in other cities to follow the example of New York and celebrate what they called a working, a work, working men's holiday on that date. And so the idea spread with the growth of labor organizations, and in 1885, Labor Day was begun to be celebrated in many of the industrial centers of the country. By 1894, 23 other states had adopted uh, the holiday in honor of workers. And in June 28th of that year, Congress passed an act making the first Monday in September of each year a legal holiday in the District of Columbia. By a resolution of the American Federation of Labor Convention of 1909... The Sunday preceding Labor Day was adopted as Labor Sunday and dedicated to the spiritual and educational aspects of the labor movement. Now, Labor Sunday didn't really catch on in a big way. Uh, if you ask people, what are you doing for Labor Day? They might tell you, or are you going somewhere for Labor Day weekend? They, yes, and they might tell you. If you say, what are you doing on Labor Sunday? They say, oh, what, is, what is that? What is that? People have uh, forgotten what that is. That, that hasn't really uh, caught into vogue very much. But it was supposed to be to observe the spiritual aspects of the labor movement or labor. And as we've said before, God made man to work. Uh, the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Uh, to keep him busy is a good thing. So we're going to talk about labor this morning, not necessarily in the way the AFL proposed and uh, not the labor that a, a lady goes into when she's bringing a child into this world, but uh, labor, what the Bible has to say about labor, what the Bible has to say about work. Lamentations tells us that it's good to bear the yoke for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Uh, it's good for a young man to learn how to work and to work hard while he's young. That's a good thing. That's a virtue. 
We've lost that for the most part in America today. Uh, used to be the danger was that uh, young people might get worked too hard. And so they had the saying that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Anybody, anybody ever heard that saying before? If you have, yeah, because the, the danger was poor little Jack would have to work all day long. Well, now it's all play and no work uh, for little Jack most of the time. But, but work is a good thing. Uh, it's good to learn how to work hard. It's not going to hurt anybody to learn how to work. It's going to hurt a person if they don't learn how to work. One of the reasons America is in the condition it's in is because we have too many young people who know all about playing every video game out there and all about skateboarding and surfing the Internet, but they know nothing about work. Uh, the Bible condemns an abundance of idleness, one of the contributing factors to uh, the downfall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sorry, I'm having trouble with my headset here this morning. The youth of America, for the most part, have, have way too much free time, way too much idle time, and, and not enough work. The Bible says if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. And you can read through Proverbs, and you'll find that God doesn't have anything good to say to a lazy person. God condemns the sluggard. God warns the slothful. Proverbs 6, 6, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. So go to the ant. If you're, if you're a slothful person, if you're a sluggard, go to the ant and consider her ways, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Without a boss, without a supervisor, uh, the ant just works and works diligently. And he goes on to say, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yeah, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come and thy want as an armed man. So it's important. It's good to learn how to work. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we find that the writer has a lot to say about labor and about work. But he doesn't seem quite as gung-ho about it. He seems a little less enthusiastic than, than we might expect him to be. In fact, he says some very negative things about labor and work. He, he saw great futility in it all, in a, in a sense. In Ecclesiastes 2.11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. In verse 18, he says, Yeah, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun. Verse 22, for what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15, he said, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And Chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and, and, and vexation of spirit. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes uses one word over and over throughout this book. The word is, is vanity. Uh, the word vanity in the Hebrew uh, means emptiness, uh, unsatisfactory, uh, in vain. It, it, it denotes something that's a waste of time. It cannot satisfy. 
As I've mentioned before, when I was in Bible college, we had a class called homiletics, and homiletics deals with the preparation, the delivery of a message or a sermon, and, and that's when you learn how you're supposed to, to preach. Every time I, I read Ecclesiastes, I, I think of that class. They taught us in that class, you're supposed to have a main thought, you're supposed to have three points in a poem, uh, you're supposed to have transition statements, you're supposed to have a logical conclusion uh, based on your points, you're supposed to have illustrations, you're supposed to have an invitation and a call to decision, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in addition to all of that, uh, you're supposed to have an opening statement. And uh, it was taught to us that you want your opening statement to be something that would uh, catch people's attention. It would pique their, their interest. It would challenge them to think. It would give them hope and encouragement, cause them to look forward with interest to the message that they're about to hear. Well, needless to say, I haven't fully implemented everything I was taught in a homiletics class. Uh, I rarely have uh, three points in my messages or a poem or a catchy opening statement. But when, when I think about homiletics class, when I read Ecclesiastes, it's because Solomon, the author, apparently didn't do too great in that class either. When you look at his opening statement, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, said the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's his opening statement for his message. Uh, everything's a big disappointment and a huge waste of time. You'll end up feeling empty and disappointed. Stay tuned for the message to follow. You know what I mean? It's just... It's like, wow, I don't don't think this is going to be very encouraging today. But everything's vanity. Vanity of vanities. And and he goes on to say, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? He's basically saying, what's the point? What's the purpose? To what end are we going through all of this busyness and all of this activity? He said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. Vexation of spirit. And that vexation of spirit is, is, is a, to be frustrated, to, to just be exasperated, if you will. And so he's saying it's all a waste, and, and it's just going to leave you feeling frustrated. So hardly a, a ringing endorsement of work and labor for this Labor Day weekend or Labor Sunday or even of life itself. Indeed, he says, as we saw before, therefore I hated life. I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health issued a report that cited the following. 40% of workers reported their job was very or extremely stressful. 25% view their jobs as the number one stressor in their lives. 26% of workers said they were often or very often burned out or stressed out by their work. Job stress is more strongly associated with health complaints than financial or family problems. According to a Gallup poll, attitudes in the American workplace says 80% of workers feel stress on the job. Nearly half say they need help in learning how to manage stress. 42% said their coworkers need such help. Any of you have coworkers that might need help that you can think of? 14% of respondents had felt like striking a coworker in the past year but didn't. That's comforting, huh? 14% of your coworkers, and it might be you they want to punch. 25% have felt like screaming or shouting because of job stress. 
10% are concerned about an individual at work that they fear could become violent. 9% are aware of an assault or violent act in their workplace. 18% had experienced some sort of threat or verbal intimidation in the past year. An Integra survey reported that 65% of workers said that workplace stress had caused difficulties and more than 10% described those as having major effects. 10% said they worked in an atmosphere where physical violence has occurred because of job stress. In this group, 42% report that yelling and other verbal abuse is common. So hopefully this is making your workplace environment look good by comparison. I don't know. Or maybe you're saying, well, yeah, I, I would be right in there. 29% had yelled at coworkers because of workplace stress. 14% said they work where machinery or equipment has been damaged because of workplace rage. 2% admitted that they had actually personally struck someone. 19% or almost one in five respondents had quit a previous position because of job stress. Nearly one in four have been driven to tears because of workplace stress. And then 62% routinely find that they end the day with work-related neck pain. 44% reported stressed out eyes, 38% complained of hurting hands, and 34% reported difficulty in sleeping because they were too stressed out by their job. So, happy Labor Day to everybody. So, so as Solomon philosophizes on, on life and work and other things, he, he wrestles with life's basic questions. He struggles with the issues and the questions that, that confront everyone when they stop and think about the purpose and, and the meaning of life. Everybody of sound mind eventually gets to a place in life where they start asking the serious life questions. Who, who am I? Who am I really? Why am I here? What is the purpose? What's the reason for my existence? What is the meaning of life? And what happens after this life is done? In Ecclesiastes 1.13, he said, I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are, that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. And as he searched, he, he wasn't happy with what he found. So I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. I've seen it. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He uses that, that phrase again. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. Everybody else would say, I, I'm doing well. I, I would be the envy of other people. I've come to great estate. I, I've gotten more wisdom than all they that had been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. This is also frustrating. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. And so it seems like the more I learn, the more I see things that are wrong and things that are messed up. And there are a lot of areas that Solomon searched, a lot of things that he investigated in his pursuit apart from God. And we'll not take the time to look at this morning. You can read them for yourself if you want. He pursued after wine, women, and song. Among other things, he found it all to be a vanity, be vanity, to be a waste. 
several years back, I mentioned this one time, we, we took a trip to Idaho back when the kids were younger. And on our return trip to California, we left about 4 a.m. to head back home, which is in itself a miracle. If you have small kids, you know, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. You know, you know how that goes. You, you tell everybody, we're going to leave at thus and such a time tomorrow, and you have to kind of give them an early time. And that's what we're shooting for, because then it's going to be a couple hours later than that. Um, but we actually left about 4 a.m. So that was, that was a big deal. That was an accomplishment. It's like, hey, we're doing great. And you wake everybody up, you feed them breakfast, you get them to the car, and then you take off, and everybody else falls asleep while Dad drives. And so we're driving down the road. Everybody's sound asleep. It's still early, and, and I'm happy that we, that we left on time because that, that was a rare thing. Hardly any traffic on the road. We're, we're doing great. And after I've been driving for a while, I started seeing things I didn't remember on our trip to Idaho. And then I noticed mileage signs that were telling me miles to certain cities that, that um, I didn't remember going through on our way up. But we're making good time. Everybody's asleep, and I'm, I'm awake. We're driving. And finally, I came to a place where I had to make a choice between two different freeways, and neither one looked good. Neither one looked like it was familiar. And, and uh, I pulled over. I woke up my wife and asked her where we were. And this was... <laughs> Trust me, half asleep, she knows more where we are than I do wide awake. <laughs> but this was before GPS, and so she got out the map, and she studied it for a while, and she concluded that we weren't uh, where we were supposed to be. Many, many miles back down the freeway, I had missed a freeway change I was supposed to make, and we were, I think, somewhere around 100 miles in the wrong direction. And I remember thinking, man, what a waste. What a waste. I mean, we left on time. That was such a good accomplishment. But I just, just hijacked the whole thing. And uh, what good does it do to be making good time if it's in the wrong direction? And my kid said, Mom, you're not allowed to go to sleep anymore while Dad is driving. <laughs> and I remember, I, don't know, I suppose about five years ago, I was preaching over in Europe. And, and so we'd take the train. And so we were trying to go from Germany to Luxembourg. I was supposed to go to France and preach. And, and so the train's over there. Literally, the train ticket says, be at the platform two minutes before the train is supposed to leave, which is impressive when you think of, you know, you have to be at the airport two or three or four hours before. But we were, we were trying to do everything just right. And so we, we got there 20, 30 minutes early, went into the ticket office and just checked to make sure, yes, we're Platform 7, make sure you're Platform 7, that's going to Luxembourg. And, and so we're dutifully standing at Platform 7 15 minutes ahead of time. And there's other people there and waiting for our train. And then they said some things in German that we didn't pay attention to. And so other people were coming, people were leaving. It's a constant flow of activity. And so after a while, at the point in time, the train pulls up, we jump on and take off. And so we're going down the tracks, and if you've ever ridden the trains in Europe, you, you can ride for a while before the conductor comes and checks your ticket. And so we'd gone, well, probably an hour, hour and 15 minutes down the tracks, and here comes the conductor, and he says, can I see your tickets? And my wife gives him the tickets, and he says, um, where, where are you going? And so oh, we're going to Luxembourg. He's well, no, no, you're you're actually going to Berlin. Well, my wife thought she was he was joking. No, no, yeah. So no, no, I serious. You are going to Berlin. Oh no, 
So they had in German told the people, just a little trick on English-speaking Americans, that the track or the platform was being changed. And so all the people that spoke German got on the right train and we got on the wrong one. And so then he writes something on a ticket. He says, don't, uh, don't go back to the ticket office because they'll try to make you buy another ticket because you've already bought a ticket. And then he wrote something on our ticket in German. And he says, just get on the next train. You're going to have to go back to where you came from. And then you get on the right train. Don't talk to anybody. Just do, do this. And, and he, he gives us his ticket. I don't know what he wrote on it, but it's probably, please help stupid Americans, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so we've gone about an hour, hour and 15 minutes the wrong direction. Now we have to get off, wait for another train, wait till it goes. And then we have to go back hour, hour and 15 minutes that way, then wait for the right, the next right train and then go. And again, it was like, wow, what a waste. What a waste. We wasted all this time going the wrong direction. And, and, and so my reaction toward our accidental detour from Idaho or over in Europe is similar to Solomon's reaction towards labor and, and, and even towards life. He's, he's, he's looking at life. He's going, what a waste. What a waste. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I, I don't feel that way about my job. I get paid really well. I'm able to buy a nice house and, and uh, have a couple of nice cars, save money for my kids' college education so they can do even better than, than I've done. And I, Everything's great. And let's say that all of that comes about. So your kids get to go to an expensive college. They graduate. They get a job. They make even more than you do. They buy a bigger house. They have nicer cars. They can send their kids to even better colleges so their kids can make even more money and on and on and on. Is that the meaning of life? If you can finally have the best job, the best house, the best cars, Solomon achieved what many people think is worth achieving. They'll almost sell their soul to get what Solomon achieved. In Ecclesiastes 2.10, he said, Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I, I kept not from them. I, I got whatever I wanted. I withheld not my heart from any joy. At this point, he said, My heart rejoiced in all my labor. This was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. And on the labor that I'd labored to do, behold, all was vanity. All was vanity. It's all a waste. A vexation of spirit. It was just frustrating. There was no profit under the sun. This is the man that said, I got whatever I wanted. I had enough money. I could buy whatever my heart desired. I didn't have to wait. Didn't have to save up for it. Didn't have to shop for a good deal. Whatever I wanted, I got. I got. You see, I, I've, got a, I've got a great job. I enjoy my work. I'm going to put in my 30 years there. And, but if your job is the end in itself, you will find one day it was vanity. If it's a means to an end and the end isn't the right one, you'll find out one day that it was vanity. There's a little three-word three question that ought to make us think. You say, I'm going to put in my 30 years. And then what? I'm going to retire. And then what? I'm going to relax. I'm going to travel. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to play golf more. I'm going to fish. And, and, and then what? 
I'm going to die. And then what? If work was the end in itself for you or the means to the wrong end, at that moment, you'll understand fully that it was all vanity. Vanity. You might live for work right now. You might live for your career, but one day you will understand that you've lived for the wrong thing. What good does it do to be making good time if you're going in the wrong direction? How many people sacrifice some unsacrificable things for their career? It's been said that no man on his deathbed ever says, I I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Some people sacrifice their family. Some people sacrifice their convictions. Some people sacrifice their health. Some people spend their early years spending their health to get wealth, and then they spend the rest of their lives spending their wealth to try to get health. Solomon investigated a lot of different things. And along the way, he said this, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. I use that verse, as many of you know, at every funeral I ever preach. It's better to go to the house of mourning, the house of grieving. Why? Because that is the end of all men. It's a sobering thing. The living will lay it to his heart. There's something sobering about looking into a casket. There's something about going to a funeral that can change your priorities. Uh, You work hard to to make money, to, to get the commission, to get the raise, to get the promotion, to get the perks, to get the bonus, to get the acclaim. But one day, you're going to leave it all behind, all of it. Ecclesiastes 5.13, there is a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. He goes on to say, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? We don't think of it that way. Well, I'm working to get money. I'm working to buy this. I'm working to do that. I'm working to... But Solomon mentions there are people that labor for the wind. In other words, their work does not have the purpose for which it should have the purpose. The end is all the wrong things. They're going in the wrong direction. They're making good time, but they're laboring for the wind. They'll have nothing of value to show for it one day. They, oh, they might have a big bank account, but they, they're going to leave all that behind. It's like when I think it was one of the Rockefellers died, and, and the question was, well, how much money did he leave? And the person said, he left all of it. He left all of it. And we all will. What profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? You see, we think, well, my my job, I I don't like it because the boss is mean or it's too hard. And and, and for that reason, I don't like my job. And somebody else says, well, I like my job. My boss is nice. I like the work. But both can be still laboring for the wind. They have the wrong end in, in view and the wrong priorities, the wrong perspective, the wrong hopes for that job. 
everything you invest your time on, your energy on is for this life, then you're laboring for the wind. You've got nothing eternal to show for it. You've got to leave it all here. And you say, well, I'm providing an inheritance for my kids. I'm providing an inheritance for my grandkids, and that's a worthwhile thing. And you know, Solomon, he, he thought about that too. And the more he thought about it, the more it, it bothered him. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, he said, Yeah, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he should be a wise man or a fool? So as Solomon is accumulating and gathering all this together, and one day he's looking on all that, he says, you know what? i got to leave all this behind. And who knows if the one I leave it to or the people I leave it to, if they're going to be a wise man or, or they're going to be a fool. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. I could be accumulating all this and, and then leave it behind to a fool. Psalm 39, 6, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted or all the energy they put into life in vain. He heapeth up riches and, and knoweth not who shall gather them. Doctors may end up getting all your money or attorneys or con men or a son or a grandson who may be ruined by all that money. Proverbs 20, verse 21 says, An inheritance may be gotten hastily at the beginning, but the end thereof shall not be blessed. The end thereof shall not be blessed. Ecclesiastes seven eleven says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Wisdom is good. If you have wisdom and you have the wisdom to know how to spend that money, invest that money, use that money, then it's good. Otherwise, it's not. I, I wouldn't leave a dime to any of my kids that weren't living in wisdom. Why? Why? Why try to steward well and be prudent and wise and, and, and do the best with your money and then leave it to somebody that's going to be a fool? You're not helping them any at all. In fact, you're hurting them. And you're wasting your money. Here's an interesting article. After 92 years, millionaires, my, millionaire misers' heirs finally split $100 million. After 92 years. In bizarre bequest, it was locked away until 21 years after the last grandchild died. In 1919, he was a greedy multimillionaire who didn't want to see his family get its hands on the vast fortune he'd amassed as a lumber baron. But in 2011, Wellington R. Burt is the sort of generous benefactor who usually exists only in daydreams, the long-lost relative you never met who leaves you millions of dollars. With the conditions of a strange will, which barred any money from his estate being distributed until 21 years after the death of his last grandchild having been met. Imagine writing a will that way. Twelve of Bert's descendants split a fortune estimated at about $100 million. By 5 p.m. on Monday, each of those 12 became instant millionaires after Saginaw, Michigan County Chief Probate Judge Patrick McGraw ordered full distribution of the estate by that deadline. It took 20 attorneys working together to get it done. 20 attorneys. Imagine how much money was of the estate went to that. When Bert died in Saginaw in March 1919 at the age of 87, he was one of the eight 
richest men in America. Most likely as a result of a family conflict at the time, he did not want to leave any substantial amount of his money to his immediate family, so he made his strange stipulation when he hand-wrote his will in 1917. His last grandchild died in 1989, but it wasn't until 2010, 21 years later, as the will specified, that a group of Burt's descendants began the legal proceedings to reach an agreement to disperse his fortune. Thirty of them applied to claim a pile of that money, a piece of that pile of money, but genealogical research whittled them down to the quote-unquote lucky group of 12. The recipients range in age from 19 to 94 years old. The lucky peep dozen have succeeded where six children and 11 great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren could not. That group either was banned from receiving a large inheritance by Burt's will or died in the 92-year waiting period before an agreement was finally reached. The most that any of Burt's immediate family ever received out of the estate he once referred to as the golden egg was a $30,000 annual payment to a favorite son, according to the Saginaw News. The other children were left with anything from $1,000 to $5,000 a year, amounts similar to what Burt left his secretary, housekeeper, chauffeur, and cook. Since Burt's death, his descendants tried multiple times to get portions of the golden egg by attempting to break the trust in court, but none was successful in having any significant part of his estate awarded. A son, three daughters, and four granddaughters were able to scrape away $720,000 in cash and title in 1920 from iron mine leases that Burt controlled in Minnesota. And in 1961, a group of descendants was able to grab 700000 in a settlement for a suit brought against the trust. Still, no one could fully get their hands on an estate estimated as the biggest that any judge has ever dealt with in Saginaw history. After 92 years, Burt's remains remain in a 15-foot-high white mausoleum in Forest Lawn Cemetery in Saginaw. But the iron grip he kept on his vast fortune has finally been released. The eighth richest man in America at the time. And all his money did was bring misery and sorrow and fighting with his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids. And the last grandchild had to die and then wait 21 years. Can you imagine for the greedy relatives thinking, man, when will that guy die? Die! (laughs) What a dysfunctional, messed-up family. There's a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. So all that money, which could have been used productively in good ways, stewarded well, became a source of endless contention and misery. What a tragedy. I talked with a man about an estate in Britain worth $30 million. He's familiar with the case. The money was left to the three children, all adults in age, if not in behavior, two unmarried sons and and one daughter who's married. And the married daughter had two kids. And the will stipulated that the estate be divided equally $10 million to each child. That's a lot of money. The married daughter contested the will in insisting that her two children should be included in it and should receive a share. At last report, over 10 years and $8 million have been spent in legal wranglings and nobody has received any inheritance. Also, no family reunions are planned for the foreseeable future. But $30 million, each child could have had $10 million. $8 million has now been chewed up by attorneys and the families, the kids hate each other. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, 
come ye buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Goes on to say, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be a steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. In vain. It's not in vain in the Lord. Solomon pursued after things, riches, money. He worked hard. He says, you know, it's all a waste. It's all a waste. Because while man was made to work... He was also made to serve God, to work for God, to live with eternity in view, to have eternal values. And work absent all of that eventually becomes very shallow, very empty, very unsatisfying. And so you can know people that are extremely wealthy, financially speaking, that are morally bankrupt, that are miserable, that are frustrated with life like Solomon was at this point where he, he's away from God thinking he's going to find the deep meanings of life and, and what life's all about apart from God. There's one thing that Solomon got right from homiletics class. He had a good conclusion. He didn't have uh, three points. He had far more than three points. He didn't have a poem, but he had a good conclusion he comes down to the end of his book, he says, let us hear the conclusion. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Here's a man that pursued just about everything. He, he did all kinds of things in the area of work and had all kinds of construction projects and gardening projects and, and he amassed silver and gold and he was a powerful ruler and, and he had money and he multiplied wives, had plenty of wives. and He's seeking after just fun and games and let the good times roll. But he was miserable, empty, sad. So he comes down to the end of his life. He says, let's hear the conclusion. I've wasted a good portion of my life. Don't waste yours. Fear God. Stand in awe of God. Keep his commandments. Live for God. That's the whole duty of man. God's going to bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. You know, if you're not saved, it starts with you getting saved. It starts with you repenting of your sin and turning and trusting Christ as your Savior and then purposing to live for that one that gave his life for you. And so in whatever endeavor in life, you go to work tomorrow morning and you're working your job, it's not just to make money. It's not just to buy things. You have the opportunity, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, to do all to the glory of God and to make an impact for eternity and live for something that matters. Otherwise, you'll be where Solomon was in his pursuit, where he says, that's a waste. You see, a, a lot of people are on this treadmill. You watch a hamster running furiously on his little treadmill, going nowhere. 
thinking, you know what, if I can, if I can just get that promotion, if I can just get that bonus, if I can just get that position, if I can just get that raise, if I can just get the corner office, if I can just get, I remember reading about a man, he said his goal, he said the executives at his company, they all had a key to the executive restroom, not with the rest of the riffraff of the company. He lived for the key to the executive restroom. So one day he got it. And he found out he wasn't any happier than he was before. How many people live for shallow things? If I can just get to this level. How many people say, well, if I could just be a millionaire, by the time they got to be a millionaire, being a millionaire didn't mean as much anymore. Well, if I can just become a multimillionaire. So reading about the people, there's a place in, in Florida called Florida's Gold Coast where the people there are, are just multi, 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 multi-millionaires and people want to live there. They move there and then they find out they're one of the poorest people on the block now. They were the richest person on the block in their old neighborhood and, and they're dissatisfied again and got to up their financial status and got to make more money and got to get with this crowd and all about the perks and the image and the reputation and all of that. If I can have this, I can have that. And when you get it, you find, you know what, it, this doesn't satisfy either. Solomon got this, this didn't work. Got this, this didn't work. Got this, it didn't work. I withheld not my heart from any joy. He said it was all vanity. It was all a waste. It was all vexation of spirit. It was all frustrating. Why? Because the Bible says, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Money can never satisfy the deep yearning of your heart. Things can never fill the void, the vacuum in your heart. Experiences can never satisfy just except for temporarily, but never satisfy for the long term. Solomon said, live for God. Live for God. This is the whole duty of man. If you're not saved this morning, I want to challenge you. It starts with you getting saved. If you are saved this morning, I want to, I want to ask you something. Would you consider your priorities? What are you living for today? What's important to you? What direction are you going are you, are you laboring for the wind? Even as a child of God, you can do that. Live your life for that which ultimately cannot satisfy. What good does it do to be making good time if you're going in the wrong direction? Oh, that we would live our lives with eternity in view. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the invitation time now, that you'd work in hearts and lives in Jesus' name.